Well, keep your Bible open to uh, Psalm chapter 80. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm really preaching this message to myself this morning, and I'm just going to invite you to listen, okay? That may get a little bit personal for a minute um, this morning with you. Recently, Sarah and I had a, had a real heart-to-heart. Those of you that have been married for any length of time, you've probably had this with your spouse. Well, Sarah and I had that right after Easter sermon uh, last Sunday. Just a day or two after that, she said, I want to talk to you. I'm, I'm getting burdened for you. I'm getting concerned for you. <clears throat> and so we sat down and we had a talk. And she said she sensed that I was in a slump. And she didn't really know why, but she was burdened for me and she was concerned. So she was praying. And so some of the things that she listed uh, were Easter is like Super Bowl Sunday for a church, Right? Everyone's excited. You connect with new people. You see visitors coming. You see people that have been out of church for a long time come back. Over the moon excitement. And she didn't really sense that in me. And she was right. I got to be honest. I, I can't really explain it. I have a hard time with Easter sometimes. I'm not really sure why. I always have. We're in year five here. You think I would have gotten over that by now. I'm not, I'm not really sure why. But I, every year, I sense that the, that the excitement I'm trying to muster up is almost manufactured. And I have to ask God to, to really help me. But she said that concerned her. I mean, the motto of our church is where the insiders exist for the outsiders, right? And Easter is when the most outsiders come, and I just, our leadership is praying. People are excited. We got these programs, had an Easter egg hunt at our house. And uh, it was hard for me. I don't know why, really, but she was concerned about that. And she said she was also noticing at the house that I was getting very easily irritated and losing my temper sometimes with, with our kids, not with my wife. Uh, for, for some strange reason, God has blessed our marriage. When, when Sarah, um, when I get angry at Sarah, she laughs. So we never really have any arguments, honestly. She, she laughs and shuts me down. And so, but I, I, I've been getting easily irritated with our children, and, and she noticed that. And also just leading our family spiritually. Just over the past month or so, she's just noticed there's been some neglect on my part. Um, and so we sat down and we talked about those things. Had a real heart-to-heart. And by the way, I give my wife a head-hunting license. And I hope every spouse in this room who's married, you do the same thing. The Bible calls us to one another. We've got to be honest with one another. We've got to share and carry one another's burdens and intercede for one another. And so when my wife sat down with me and pointed these things out in love and tenderness, I had to agree. So what do you do? Do you protest? Do you get cynical? Do you get angry? Do you disengage? No. I said, you're right. You're absolutely right. And in that moment, I saw, God, you love me so much, you gave me this moment right here. This moment. This is your grace to me. Giving me a wife that loves me this much, that is going to say hard things to me when I need to hear them. And so what did I do? Well, I've been doing it all week. I, I don't know why, but I find myself going to this psalm, Psalm 80. This is one of my favorite psalms. You know, I've never taught on it. I wrote half of a sermon on it years ago. And I found it, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to preach on this this week. Because it's a psalm that's all about restoration. That's what I needed. I need a restoration. Now listen, some of you guys, if this is your first Sunday here, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is the loony bin here. Who, this, this pastor, what's he going to resign? No, 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 this is not anything scandalous or disqualifying. This is life, guys. I grew up thinking preachers were perfect people that had like this invisible halo on their head, and they had all their stuff together. Even though I knew some preachers, and I knew better. But listen, my own experience and the scripture tells me that's just not true. And that's not realistic. And it's hard enough being a pastor without all this added pressure. And I thank God you're not like that. I wanted to be honest with you this morning. Sometimes your pastor needs renewal and I need restoration. I need to be refreshed. 
And I see that in my own experience. Some of you have shared that with me, and you see it all throughout the Bible. So I refuse to let you think the same things about preachers that I thought growing up. I want you to know this is, this is who I am. I needed to be restored. I needed God to come and meet me and shine his face on me and restore me. And I thought, you know what? Maybe, maybe some of you need that too this morning. And so I wanted to share, I wanted to share this psalm with you. Um, and so here, here's the outline this morning that we're going to be looking at. This is a psalm that's all about restoration. So three, three points. Number one, we need continual restoration. Everybody, every single Christian needs constant and continual restoration. And here's the second thing. We need it from our shepherd. We need it from our shepherd. He's the only one that can provide that for us. And that's why we cry out to him. And the third thing is this. We need it through his shining face. And that may seem and sound a little bit cheesy to you, but it's straight out of God's word. And we're going to look at those things together. So that's our outline this morning. Uh, First of all, we need continual restoration. We need continual restoration. Look at this uh, psalm together. Chapter 80. This is uh, to the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asap. Now this is Asap. Most people think that all the psalms were written by David. They weren't. There's a variety of contributors. David wrote most of the psalms, but there were other men who contributed. The sons of Korah, this man named Asap. Even Moses wrote one of the psalms. Solomon wrote one of the psalms. And you find this consistent theme, not only in the book of Psalms, we're just going to designate our time for there this morning, but all throughout the scriptures. And you see these men and women at times confessing their need to be restored. And listen, we will never grow out of that need. If you ever grow out of your awareness, your dependency, your need to be restored, you're in serious, serious trouble. (laughs) That's it, you're done. But we see this in the Bible. What does it mean to be restored? This word is really interesting. Do you know that this is the same word in Hebrew? I'm not going to get all geeked out, geek out on you and get technical. But this is the same word in Hebrew for repent. It's shuv, or like I like to say shove. It means to go back. It means to turn back. The New Testament word is repent, metanoia. Old Testament word is shuv, and it means to turn. It literally means to go back. So this psalmist, all throughout Psalm chapter 80, he, and you see this main refrain, you, you heard it when Chief Jason read it, he's saying over and over, restore us, O God. Restore us, O God. Verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. And then look at verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then look down at verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then look at verse 19. Same thing. Restore us. Restore us. Restore us. Turn us back. Turn us back. Take us back. Make us great again kind of ideas. What it really is. Now, who, who wrote this and, and what was the context of this psalm? That, 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 may, be, that may prove helpful for you. Most scholars believe that this psalm was written right after the northern ten tribes of Israel were ransacked by Assyria. If you know anything about biblical history, Assyria was this fierce nation. They skinned their captives alive. They were ruthless. They were vile. They didn't want to talk negotiations and have a peace treaty. They just wanted to kill and rape and pillage and destroy. And they had taken all ten tribes up, up north in Israel. They had taken them captive destroyed a lot of their foundations 
Ten of the twelve tribes were up there. And there's two tribes down in the south where Judah is, where Jerusalem is. And they're watching this. They're seeing what is happening to the ten tribes. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, we're done. If the ten tribes have been captured, the cities have been destroyed, burned to the ground, God has allowed His choice people, Israel, to be attacked and to be mocked and to be shamed and to be scattered. We're next. So they were distressed. They were afraid. They no longer had a familiar face up north, their cousins, their family. They had a fierce nation. And they were being mocked. They were being laughed at. They were being scoffed. People were saying, hey, where's your God? Where's your God at now? Look at Assyria. They're like destroying every village and town they come into. And so these people were afraid. And you're hearing that. They're saying, God, what are you doing? Where are you when we need you? Why are you to, we're your choice vine. You hear that language in here. They're saying, we're a vine that you took out of Egypt. And you planted in the promised land. And you watered us. And you nourished us. And we grew. We even provided shade for the cedars of Lebanon and all through the forest. And now look, you've broken down our walls. The boar, the wild animals out of the forest are coming and attacking us. People, our enemies are mocking us. And you're saying, can you put this in street clothes? Yeah, I can put this in street clothes. This guy's looking around and all he can see is signs of unfaithfulness to God. He sees it everywhere. And if we're honest, we do too sometimes. How many people in here feel like you have suffered because of somebody else's unfaithfulness to God? You don't have to raise your hand. because You don't have to because I know every single person in here. Some of you feeling this right now. Deep hurt and betrayal from somebody else and the wreckage and the carnage is splashing onto your life. And it's not fun. It's not pleasant. It wrecks you. Whether it's a spouse, whether it's a parent, whether it's a child, whether it's a friend, whether it's a church that's wounded you and hurt you. I meet people every single week that live right here in this psalm. Or maybe it's this. Maybe it's a waywardness in your own heart and you're seeing it and you're sensing it, like my wife sitting down at the table with me, I'm sensing some pockets of unfaithfulness to God, and it's harming my family. It's harming those that I love the most, that are the closest to me. They're suffering from this. So you can turn that. Either you're suffering from somebody else's faithfulness, or somebody else is maybe suffering from your unfaithfulness. And it's everywhere. We shake our fist at unbelievers and say, look at all this pressure and conflict they're causing us. Guys, we got enough within our own with, we got enough to worry about in our own heart, right? So that's where this person was living who wrote this song. He says, take us back. Take us back to the good old days, Lord, before the ten tribes fell. Don't we pray that sometimes? Have you ever prayed that? Lord, I want to go back to when it was pleasant, to when it was good. And sometimes God doesn't answer that prayer. He didn't answer their prayer. Have you been to Israel lately? Have you seen all 12 tribes there worshiping in Jerusalem? No, there's a Muslim, there's a Muslim mosque there where the, the temple was in Jerusalem. God did not answer this prayer the way that they wanted him to answer it, but he did hear it, and he does hear yours. And he did bring restoration, but in a different way. Sometimes God doesn't take us back before the storm, before the divorce, before the separation, before the phone call, before the diagnosis, before the argument. Before the death of the loved one, sometimes he doesn't take us back to before that. He takes us beyond that. He does that. We don't need to go back. That wouldn't be profitable for us. We need to go beyond. And he promises us present grace and strength to be able to provide that. We don't need our circumstances to change all the time. We just need God to come and rescue us. 
We need the restoration only He can bring. You've sensed that and I've sensed that. That's what this psalm is all about. All of us, all of us have needed this. I can remember I was at a shepherd's conference uh, where I went to school and, and two guys I really looked up to, John MacArthur and John Piper. If you don't know who that is, that's okay. Uh, they're just preachers, hero preachers of mine. And they're two totally different men. It's just really amazing. John MacArthur would say he's never struggled with depression a day in his life. Some people find that really unhelpful <laughs> to hear a pastor say that, but that's okay. He's being honest. And John Piper, who suffered with severe depression most of his ministry. And both of these men are up on a stage and they're doing a Q&A. And they're, they're almost arguing <laughs> with each other. Because, uh, you know, Piper is asking MacArthur, have you ever just sat on your back steps and just cried because of ministry, because of marriage? And John says, no, I don't have time for that. <laughs> and John, I'm, not, I'm not saying that was bad. He was just being honest. And, and John Piper said, oh, I've got tons of time for it. You know, like they're both so busy. But John Piper wrote a book, and it was called Desiring God. And he says this, I think I put it up here, but you can probably never read half the stuff I put up here, it's so little. He said, every day with Jesus is not sweeter than the day before. Some days with Jesus, our disposition is sour. Some days with Jesus, we are so sad, we feel our heart break open. Some days with Jesus, we are so depressed and discouraged that between the garage and the house, we just want to sit down on the grass and cry. Every day with Jesus is not sweeter than the day before. We know it from experience, and we know it from Scripture. And then the quote stops there, but I want to keep reading. He says, For David says in Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's the same word in Hebrew, shuv. The law of the Lord is perfect, shuving us, restoring us, bringing us back. If every day with Jesus were sweeter than the day before, if life were a steady ascent with no dips in our affection for God, we, did, we wouldn't need to be revived, John Piper says. This means David must have had bad days. Imagine that. Man after God's own heart having a bad day and needing to be revived. Or your pastor having a bad week <laughs> and needing to be revived. Or maybe you, Christian, needing this restoration and refreshing that this talks about. There were days when David's soul needed to be restored. Normal Christian life is a repeated process of restoration and renewal. Our joy is not static. It fluctuates with real life. And look, I know sometimes my pet peeve is when preachers preach on a million passages except the one right in front of you. So I tend to not give you a million cross-references when I preach, but I want to give you just a few because I really want to prove this. Psalm 51 is an amazing psalm of repentance. David sinned against his wife. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against God. And he's repenting and asking God to change his heart and to renew him and to cleanse him. And one of the verses, verse 12, says this. He says, O God, restore to me, same word in Hebrew, restore to me the joy of your salvation. When he had sinned, when he turned his back and got wayward, he lost something. He lost a lot of things. But he lost the main thing was the joy of his salvation with God. And he is asking God, he's begging God, would you please take me back? Restore me that joy before this happened. And God did that for him. Even though he faced severe consequences for his rebellion and for his betrayal of his wife and his family and the kingdom. He's praying that God would take him back. Listen to this. This is another psalm by the sons of Korah, the worship leaders of Israel. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Here's Jeremiah, 
one of the major prophets of Israel in the book of Lamentations. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. And here's my favorite. This is Psalm 23 that probably every person in this room knows. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He, what? Restores my soul. You know, sometimes your soul needs to be restored and revived and refreshed. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, and you've sat under the right kind of teaching, <laughs> you know this. You know this. Not only do you know it about your own heart, you know it about the hearts of other people around you. And what do you do? What do you pray? I love the prayer in the psalm. I know the psalm is 19 verses long, but this prayer, the repeated prayer, is very simple. I need a million things, God, but I'm just going to boil it down to one thing. Would you please come and restore me? Have you ever felt like you don't really know how to pray? You don't really know what to say? How to articulate the burden in your heart? And in the New Testament, Romans 8, it says the Holy Spirit groans with us with words we can't even articulate. But I find in the book of Psalms 2, there's these patterns that are really helpful. I think this person, Asaph, was so overwhelmed. He didn't know what to ask God, so he just said, God, please restore me. Please refresh in me. Please change my heart. Take me back to a place of security and stability and encouragement that I've lost. I've lost your smiling face. I've lost your favor. He felt like that at least, and so he's asking God to bring that back. It's a bold prayer. To restore something is harder than just starting over. Do you know that? I used to be a carpenter. I say used to so that nobody in here ever asked me to do anything. <laughs> no, I did. I spent most of my life as a carpenter, you know, in Arkansas. So you, you don't really need a license to do anything here. You just do it. If it stays together, well and good. I'm half kidding, guys, okay? I can, I can put your ceiling fan up and it'll probably be okay. <laughs> but did you know that restoring something, and Joe will tell you this is true, restoring something's a lot harder than starting with a fresh foundation. You know that? If anybody's ever remodeled your home, we've remodeled too. And our marriage, that's the most pressure ever put on a marriage. It's a lot harder to restore something, but I will tell you this, the results are that more marvelous and, and, and awe-inspiring. When you say, look, you know what this used to look like, now look at it. It's been, it's been restored. It's been restored. Painstaking, tedious process. You can't go in to restore with a sledgehammer. You can't do that. There's precious, fragile things that need to be preserved. God is the only one who can restore us. He really is. When we try to do it, we wreck things. We do. We wreck our marriages. We wreck our, our children. We wreck our parents. We wreck our friends. We wreck our church. We, can, we, we can't. I've done that. I've been a part of that. Since I planted this church, I cannot tell you how many people I have go, had to go to in humility and ask their forgiveness for hurting them unintentionally. Because I thought I was restoring them. I was, I was destroying them. Did I say that right? I thought I was restoring them when I was destroying them and crushing them. Let's get John Piper's face down here. There we go. Love you, John, but... <laughs> maybe, maybe you've sensed that too. And I love that about God. He doesn't, he doesn't dispose of things. You know, one of the most gentle descriptions of Jesus is that a smoking flax, that's like a... A candle that's about to burn out. The wick is at the very wit's end and most people would snub it out, break it off and throw it away. He says a smoking flax, he won't quench it. And a bruised reed, he won't snap it in two and say that's worthless. No, that's not how Jesus operates. He restores things and he gets more glory when he does that. 
because we see what this thing used to be, what this marriage used to be, what this family used to be, what this person used to be, what this church used to be. And we see what it has become by God's grace through His power. And He gets glory from that. We don't. Everybody knows we didn't do that. (laughs) We couldn't do that. We don't have the power or the wisdom or the skill or the experience. Only God does. These people that Asap Asap is talking about, look at this. He says in verse 4, How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You know what this is saying? Saying, Lord, we are choking on our tears here. This is unbearably sad. We cannot endure this anymore. You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to restore the vine. It's being overran. We're being mocked. We're sad. We can't function. We're afraid. We're disillusioned. We're disheartened. And that's why point two is this. Point one was we all need continual restoration. Point number two is this. We need it from our shepherd. He's the only person that can do it. Look at verse one. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead, listen to these metaphors, analogies. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned above the cherubim. So in one, in one phrase, you have so many of these attributes of God. He's, he's powerful, he's wise, he's tender, he's loving. You know the three main fears that people have when they're going through a distressful time? Is that nobody knows what I'm going through, nobody cares, and there's nothing anybody can do about it anyway, even if they did. Nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody can do anything. Now, he knows, he cares, he's a shepherd. He's, you know... And he's enthroned above the cherubim. He's sovereign. He's wise. He's loving. He's kind. He's sovereign. And he knows. He knows. He gets it. He understands. In a way that no other human being can. I I love the analogy that we are the sheep of his pasture and that he is our shepherd. You know, that's the analogy we most need. That, that, That conjures up the most tender and intimate image. Because, and humbling and I've talked about this before. You know, sheep, sheep are not the most flattering domestic animals in the world. This baffles people that believe in evolution because sheep can't survive without a person. You know that? I mean, rams and mountain goats can, but not sheep. They'll die. If you release a sheep out into the wild to be wild again, you know what's going to happen? They'll die. They'll go off a cliff. They'll drink poisonous water. They'll eat poisonous plants. They'll die. If you release a horse into the wild, they'll become wild. Without a rancher, a horse gets wild. Without a shepherd, a sheep dies. They die. Now, we never farm sheep where I'm from in Arkansas. Um, But I've read enough about them to know they're they're not that bright of an animal. (laughs) You know, they're really not. They lose their sense of direction. They stray. They're wayward. They're really stubborn animals. And, and the analogy of a shepherd works because, listen, if, and there's all kinds of analogies that talk about God, and I love all of them. This one is the most endearing to me. If we just talk about God as king, there are, there are parts of our life where a king is, is he's, he's sovereign, he's authoritative, yes. But a king just doesn't live with you in your house, right? <laughs> I mean, he, he shouldn't unless, you know, your dad's the king or, or whatever. Uh, a, a, a king's not with you all the time. There are parts of your life that, that a normal human king doesn't have access to. Not a shepherd, no. Shepherd lives with the sheep, sleeps beside the sheep. Psalm 23, he leads them beside still waters, makes them lie down in green pastures. 
No, you need this shepherd. He's the one that knows you the best, and he's the one that knows how to restore you. And that's why it's folly to run from the shepherd. And we do. We self-shepherd sometimes. I will tell you this. Every single person in this auditorium, as, as a, a theologian and a biblicist, I can tell you this. Every single person in this congregation, you're looking for a shepherd somewhere. You will find a shepherd. We are hardwired to need them and to seek after them. Sometimes you'll be your own shepherd, just like you'll be your own king, right? Tom Petty song, it's good to be king just for a day, right? We all, we all self-shepherd sometimes and get wayward, and it never works. It never, ever works. I talk to people all the time that try to self-shepherd. We're not wise enough. We're not smart enough. We're not righteous enough. And I've told you the 10-year uh, truth, right? You look at yourself 10 years ago, and what do you say? What an idiot. <laughs> 10 years from now, you're going to look at yourself today and say, what an idiot. That's right. I'm not trying to, you know, anger you or offend you, but we are idiots in, in pockets of blindness that we don't see, and we need a shepherd. We need the shepherd to restore us. He's the only one who can. And I love it that Jesus comes, and, and, he, and he calls himself... What? I'm the good shepherd. He shows up and he says, I know you need a shepherd. I know you're looking for it in the wrong places. I know you've had terrible examples from your spiritual leaders in the New Testament, but I'm here to tell you I am the good shepherd and everyone else is a thief and a hireling. I'll lay down my life for the sheep. Anybody know any shepherds like that? Are you seeking after a shepherd that laid his life down for you? If you're not, wrong one. Going to lead you astray, going to hurt you. Will hurt you bad. But that's the kind of person we need to restore us. We need a shepherd. And this talks about the active involvement of God in every area of your life. He knows, he cares, he's the only one that can do anything about it. These people are saying in this psalm, Asaph is crying out for Israel, and he's saying, Lord, you seem quiet, you seem inactive, you seem like you're asleep, will you please wake up? There's this intimate language here. You're the shepherd, where are you at? What's going on? Your people are getting ravaged. The sheep are getting stolen away. We need you. It's a bold prayer. We need you to come and restore us. And then here's the third point. Here's the third point. We need this restoration through the shining face of God. And this is the best point of all. And I love this. Of all the things that you could pray, Lord, we need more prophets. We need more priests. We need better conditions. We need better friendships. It's our kids, Lord. You don't understand. It's my wife. It's my husband. It's my parents. It's my church. It's my pastor. He's an idiot. <laughs> All the things that the psalmist could have prayed. This is the most counterintuitive thing to pray. It really is when you think about it. Lord, we need you to restore us. We need it right now. We know you are our shepherd. So here's what we're going to ask you to do. Shine your face on us. That's it. Does that sound crazy? Are you disappointed? Tell the truth. That disappoints you, doesn't it? It's like, really? We had our pens ready, Pastor. We're about to get ready to write down this amazing thing that God is going to do to restore us. I've just told you what this amazing thing is. And it's something you should ask God to do all the time because it is the only thing that can take you back in the place where you need to be. You need, and this is beautiful, what this means in Hebrew. This means, literally, for God to smile upon you. Everybody's looking for that. You know that? We are. We look for it all our life. Maybe in our parents, 
maybe in a coach, maybe somebody we really look up to and idolize, if they would just look at us and show us favor. You know, kids that never get this from their parents, it absolutely wrecks them. And you say, oh, great, here's the pastor talking about self-esteem. I'm not talking about that. That's a bunk movement anyway. Everybody knows that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God hardwired us to know and experience and receive His favor. And we seek it in other places. And it's right that we do that sometimes when we're little because our parents are, you know, the the only version of God you have when you're little is what your parents are like because they're your authorities, right? If they're tender, if they're loving, if they're kind, if they're compassionate, if they're strong and protect you, that's kind of a little echo, a little glimpse of what God is like. A flawed version, obviously, right? But people look for this all their life. I was talking to my wife yesterday. She was an amazing, she wouldn't tell you this, she was an amazing cross-country track athlete in like a five-star school in Texas. I always thought I was hot stuff. My, my school was 3A, which means basically I didn't really compete with many people. So in my own mind, that was amazing, right? <laughs> she was from a 5A Texas school, and she tells me about this coach that was a Christian and loved her. And all she ever wanted to do was to make that coach happy, to make that coach smile at her, and for that coach to make her captain of the team. I'll let her tell you the rest of the story someday. But I, I, can, I can relate to that. You know, when I was in ministry at another church, it wasn't the lead pastor, but there was, a, there was like an associate slash executive uh, a pastor, and man, I looked up to him. He was my hero. All I ever wanted to do was please that pastor. Every message that I taught, I was hoping he would hear it and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you know what? He never did. He never did. In fact, he was very picky. <laughs> he would hear me and he would like pick, pick my message apart. Well, that's not really theologically accurate or you said it this way or you shouldn't have said that or you taught too long. And when I would counsel people and when I would try and do ministry, I was, you know, working with, with younger people. It seems like nothing I could do could ever make him happy. And then I reached a three-year mark where at this particular church, uh, that's like a... Uh, a milestone and you get a letter written by this pastor and you can ask my wife I, w- I wept when I got that, le- that letter I saw it in my box in the church office went and got it and I read this letter and I just collapsed and wept that's all I ever wanted to hear it was amazing he said I trust you with our young people I think you're doing an amazing job you're leading them in a greater Christ likeness and I've still got the letter somewhere I, I-, I held on to it why? Because finally, finally, the person that I wanted to please was, was, was happy with me. I had finally done something that they recognized. But you know what? It was short-lived. Because that's just an echo of a greater approval and affirmation we need from God. We all need that. We all search for that. And we look for it in the wrong places from the wrong people. All of us do. God made us that way. I used to think if I could just, if God would just look down on me and say, Tommy, I love you and I'm pleased with you and I'm happy with you, that would mean the world to me. And I was reading in the book of Daniel one day. You you guys ever read Daniel? There's some crazy stuff that happens in that book. One of them is this amazing, powerful angel named Gabriel comes down as God's messenger to Daniel. And the experience is so overwhelming, even seeing an angel would make you just die in your skin, right? He collapses, he's like a dead man, he's shaking, he's trembling, he's afraid. And three different times, three different times, the angel basically says this. He says, do not be afraid, Daniel, for you are greatly loved by God. 
fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Three times he said that. Now, if an angel came down and appeared to you and said that, would that blow your socks off? Would it erase any doubt? Or, or, hey, jury's still out on how God really feels about you. But can I just tell you this, friends? When, when God looked down from heaven at the baptism of Jesus and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, it might as well have been you there that he said that to. Because if you are in Christ and you are united to Christ, this is called theological terms, it calls, it's called union with Christ. God sees you as if you had lived the life of Jesus. You are his beloved son or his beloved daughter in whom he is well pleased. It's interesting to me that that, that declaration to Jesus came in the very beginning of his ministry, right before he went out in the wilderness and for 40 days and 40 nights went without food, was barren wasteland and had to face the temptations of the devil. God gave him that declaration before because he needed it. Listen, without that smile of God, we can't function. If you can function without the approval of God, then there's something, there's something wrong with you. Because that's what we have to have. That's what we need. And we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again. It's pretty crazy, actually. That's how God made us. There's a song. Now, don't laugh. Don't you laugh at me. I'm a child of the 80s. And, and there's a song that I loved secretly because it was kind of a girl song. You know, girls would sing it and everything, but I, I always liked it. Um, and th this is what it says. I'm not going to sing it because my wife doesn't let me sing up here. Um, sometimes I wonder how I'd ever make it through, through this world without having you. I just wouldn't have a clue. Because sometimes it seems like this world's closing in on me. <laughs> and there's no way of breaking free, and then I see you reach for me. Now check this out. This is the best part of the song. When I see you smile, I can face the world. Oh, my wife's laughing at me. Have you heard that song? When it comes on the radio, I want to cry. I do. Maybe you do too, and you're just too embarrassed to admit it. You know, I can do anything when I see you smile. I see a ray of light. Oh, I see, the shine, I see it shining right through the rain. You know why that song went number one in 1989? Because it resonated with so many people. They wouldn't even, they would, most of them wouldn't have a clue why that song resonated with them and why this big-haired 80s band, that's the only song I think they ever did that even made it on the radio. There's something about it. We know that's true. We need the smile of God. We need it. And listen, guys, I got some really good news for you. Some people spend their entire lives trying to make God happy, to appease Him, do their best, pull themselves up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. First, the bad news, and it's never going to be enough. You will never, ever, ever, ever be able to do, do enough to make God happy with you. Let that settle for a minute, because you need to hear that. This, this, this is bad public speaking, but this is good gospel preaching. I don't, I don't think Christians feel the force of that declaration enough. On your own, apart from God, you're never going to be able to do enough to make God happy. But that's where the bad news stops and the good news gets really, really good. You don't have to. Because somebody stood in your place and did enough to make God happy. And if you're united to them and that person is Jesus, you have God's approval. <laughs> Make sure you understood that. Because of Jesus Christ, you already have the smile of God. And there's nothing you did to earn it, so guess what? There's nothing you could ever do to, 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 to cast it away. 
You don't live under this constant fear and threat of God saying, you know what? No, I'm not going to smile at you anymore. You had a bad day. You didn't read your Bible. You didn't pray. You didn't lead your kids and family devotions for a week or a month. I'll stop there, okay? It's okay. And you say, oh, great. Now, now you're saying, you know, let sin abound. Let sin continue so grace may abound. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying this. When you're reminded of that, oh my goodness, it frees you. You're liberated. Then you want to serve God. You know, studying this psalm this week has invigorated me. I'm ready to charge hell with a water pistol. I'm serious. Let's do it together as a church. I feel restored. I feel refreshed. Because when you seek smiles and approvals of a divine character from somewhere else, it won't work. It will wreck you. And there's people that spend their entire lives in church Maybe it's bad teaching, maybe it's misunderstanding, and they really do think the jury's still out on how God feels about them. And listen, that's every false religion in the world. That's not Christianity. There's only one reason why, there's only one reason why when you stand before God, He's going to look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And it's not because you've got a great track record, okay? It's because, it's because on that cross, the Bible says, all your sins were written. And they've been erased. The Bible says they have been cast as far away as the east is from the west. That is transformative, radical good news. That's identity-shifting good news. Because you know what? Guess what? You don't achieve your identity. You receive it. That's, uh, so many people, seriously, it's like, who am I? Well, look, at I did this. This is who I am. It's not who are you. It's whose are you. Who do you belong to? You belong to the God that's already paid it all on your behalf. And giving you his righteousness. Man, that, will, that can change your life. It will change your life. And look at this, last part of the psalm. I know I've got to close here. We can't go into detail every last verse, but this is beautiful. Verse uh, 17. Look at verse 17 with me. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Oh, this is interesting. He went from a vineyard and he went from the tribes and now he's talking about one individual. Let, the, let your hand be on the, the man of your right hand. The son of man, ooh, that sounds familiar. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You know what he's talking about? Israel couldn't do what God called them to do. You know what God commissioned Israel to do and the church to do? Show the world what I'm like. How'd they do with that? We're all image bearers. You know what it means to be an image bearer? It means you're showing everybody around you, this is what God is really like. Ooh, that's scary, isn't it? How did Israel do? Terrible. They did terrible. They broke their covenant with God. And so that's why this happened. The ten tribes and eventually the two tribes down south, they were all scattered everywhere because of their unfaithfulness to God. So what did God do? He said, you can't do it. You won't do it. You're not able to. You're unwilling. You're too sinful. You're too flawed. You're too weak. I'll do it. And that's what God did. He strengthened the man of his right hand, the son of man. Jesus is the true Israel, right? Jesus came and did what Israel couldn't do and wouldn't do. He kept all the laws of God. He never sinned in word, deed, or thought. He's the son of man. That's why Jesus came and he said, the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's so interesting to me. All the, th all the things that they could pray, they knew. All their hope rested in one person. 
Come and restore us. Shine your face upon us. Sometimes I watch our, our little kids when Sarah goes to the grocery store. Thank God we live right next to Publix because she can't go that far, right? I've got a toddler and I've got a, uh, how old is he now? 10, 10 months? I forget. He's young, okay? And he's very needy. <laughs> and Sarah will go to Publix and I'll say, is your phone charged? Have it with you. Don't turn it on silent. Don't give it to the kids. Have it in your left hand the whole time. And Sarah, she, you can ask her. After 10 minutes, she'll put the baby to sleep. She'll nurse the baby. And guys, it's like five minutes. He won't be quiet. And Tyler's running everywhere. He's got a poopy diaper. Seriously. And I'm doing everything I can. I'm trying to, you know, put my finger in a hose. Water's leaking. The ship's sinking. I can't do it. No husband should be able to do that or be asked to. And the ship is sinking and I'm calling her. Please come home. Please come back. I've tried to give him a nap, I've changed his diaper, I gave him a bath, I gave him food, nothing works. There's like a thousand things this kid needs, but really there's only one thing he needs. What? His mom. He needs his mom. There's probably a thousand things that Israel needed, and there's probably a thousand things you need, but I want to tell you, I want to really simplify your spiritual life for you this morning, okay? There's probably a million things you could be praying for. Let me, let me simplify that. Why don't you pray this? God, restore me. And Lord, I know there's only one way you're going to be able to restore me, and that is if you shine the light of, of the glory of your face and favor upon me. Nothing else is going to be good enough to get me through this. God may not take you back. He may take you beyond it with the smiling favor of his face. And you know the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's amazing to me. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was lethal. You could die. <laughs> if you looked at God and saw Him, you'd, you'd be obliterated. You would disintegrate into a million. It'd be like a piece of toilet paper laid on the surface of the sun. Bye-bye. That's why Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. But you know what's so interesting to me? Jesus comes... And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's pretty amazing. People saw Jesus, they touched him, they heard him speak, and they didn't die. Because <laughs> Jesus is the face of God. If you want to see the smiling face of God, look no further than Jesus. You have his favor. And, and how could that happen? How can God, this is, this is the scandal of the gospel, how can a holy and perfect and righteous and just God look upon rebels like us and smile at us. That sounds scandalous to me. That sounds like a crooked judge is taking a bribe or something. Have you ever thought that? How can God do that? How can God look on sinners and smile at them? Well, only one way. Jesus had to face his father's frown. Right? When Jesus was on the cross, did God look down on him and smile? No. No. God looked away from him. My kids, some of my older kids at the school they go to, it's a Christian school, and they had to send a permission slip home and get it signed so they could watch The Passion of Jesus Christ by Mel Gibson. Have you seen that movie? Man, that's a rough movie to watch. But you know, it really only shows the physical torture that Jesus went through. And I was watching some of those scenes with my kids. You can judge me for letting my kids watch. That's okay. It was a great conversation with them. And I said, kids, you know... As agonizing as that was, ex excruciating and humiliating and shameful, and Mel Gibson does as good a job as anybody showing what it would look like, the scourging, the plucking of the beard, punching them, crown of thorns, blood everywhere, mangled. I said, as terrible of an experience as that was, it's nothing. 
It's nothing compared to Jesus being abandoned by God. There's no, there's no, you can't portray that in film. We see pieces of it. Jesus sweating great drops of blood in the garden. Literally, his capillaries burst and we're told in, in medical language, that's a true condition that only excruciating pressure can produce. Your body's like shutting down. Jesus knew he was about to face desertion by his father. We get the smiling face of God only because Jesus experienced his father turning his face away and rejecting him and pouring out wrath on him. So we know no matter what we're going through, we're not going to have to experience God walking away and abandoning us ever because of Christ. That's the truth. That's the beauty of it. This is what Spurgeon said, and I'll close with this. You know where God's face is. We read of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He that hath seen Jesus hath seen the Father. When our Lord smiles on us, we see the face of God. That face not veiled with frowns, but bright with smiles. A face full of love and favor. A face which was once turned away, but is now turned toward us in peace. Dearly beloved, is there any light conceivable like the shining of the love of God? To be countenanced by God is better than being commended by princes. Man, I love that. And whether you're a single parent and you're barely hanging on, or whether your marriage is on the verge of just shattering, or whether there's distress, whether there's a, a debilitating chronic illness, whether there's depression that nobody else can understand, whether you face sudden and profound loss of a loved one getting ripped away from you, whether it's issues with parenting, it doesn't matter what it is, guys. This prayer is for all of us. Lord, come and restore us. Turn us back. Shine your face upon us. Be our shepherd again. Bring us to repentance if, if there's sin in our hearts. And that's a prayer God loves to hear and He delights to answer. Do you know this shepherd? Have you prayed this way? You believe God cares? I love this psalm. The fact that it's in the Bible is just proof to me of God's tenderness.